Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. My name is Linda House. I'm the president of the Cancer Support Community, and I'm sitting in today for your regular host, Kim Tebaldo, who is off. The Cancer Support Community is a global nonprofit network of 175 locations, including Cancer Support Community and Gilda's Clubs Centers healthcare partnerships, and satellite locations that deliver more than $50 million in free support services to patients and families. In January 2018, CSC welcomed Denver-based nonprofit My Lifeline, which is a digital community that includes more than 40,000 patients, caregivers, and their supporters as a part of our organization. Today's episode hits home for me. Acute myeloid leukemia is an extremely difficult cancer to treat, and it claimed my father's life just two years ago. Even with a background as an oncology nurse, I went through many of the emotions and experiences families go through when facing this devastating diagnosis, primarily wishing I could do more. Recently, a better understanding of this stubborn disease and advancements in treatment have brought further hope and a renewed feeling of optimism for AML Uh, patients and the community at large. And I'm thrilled to have with us today Dr. Jessica Altman, who's going to tell us more about the new treatments and new approaches to treating AML. We are um, in a very unique period of growth and um, opportunity for patients with AML, and I'm, I'm excited about that. Let me just tell you a little bit about Dr. Altman. She is an associate professor in the Division of Hematology Oncology at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. She also serves as a director of the Acute Leukemia Program at the Robert H. Lurie Cancer Center at Northwestern University. Dr. Altman's clinical and research interests include acute and chronic leukemias, anemia, myelodysplastic syndromes, and myeloproliferative diseases. She's published and presented extensively in these disease areas. Dr. Altman chairs the Clinical Trial Audit Committee of the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center. She's also a member of the Northwestern Medicine Developmental Therapeutics Program, the Signal Transduction in Cancer Program, and the Hematologic Malignancies Program at the Robert H. Lurie Cancer Center. Her clinical transduction research focuses on novel targeted approaches for the treatment of acute leukemia, and that's a mouthful that we're going to learn a lot more about. Welcome to the show, Dr. Altman. Thank you so much, Linda. Um, I'd like to start off with it being an absolute pleasure to to join you today, Um, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, thank you. We're so thrilled to have you here. And on a on a personal level, I'm so thankful for the work that you're doing on behalf of, of patients and families. So let me start with a, a thank you for, for that, for sure. Thank you. So why don't you start by just sharing with our listeners this tide of progress and, you know, everything that's happened in the last couple of years around AML? Great. I would love to address that. So... Until very recently, really the last two years, the treatment for acute myeloid leukemia has not changed over the last 40 years. We have had, until the last two years, have had no new drug approvals. Um, 
for acute myeloid leukemia, we've used a couple things off-label, meaning not in their label indication, but have compendium use for, for those items. But in the last two years, we have had eight new drugs approved for acute myeloid leukemia. And it has been an incredibly exciting time to be able to offer new therapies for our patients. And I, I, I think I want to just pull us back um, a little bit, and we're going to go through, I know, some of those therapies and, and the differences of, you know, then and now. Um, but I feel like we should stop and talk about what is leukemia specifically, um, and then the differences, because I'm sure that we'll have people on the phone or, or who are listening into this show um, who are wondering, well, what's the difference between myeloid leukemia? What's the difference between lymphoid leukemia? So could you just sort of walk us through the differences? Absolutely. That's a great point. Um, Acute, I'll take a step back, leukemias are cancers of the bone marrow. And the bone marrow is the part of the body that is responsible for making the cellular elements of the bloodstream and also helps manage the immune system. So leukemias are cancers of the bone marrow. The diagnosis of an acute or chronic leukemia depends in depends on the number of blasts, which are very young leukemic cells in the bone marrow. There are many types of leukemia. The major categories that we use are chronic versus acute. Within each of those categories, the determination of whether something is myeloid or lymphoid, so acute myeloid leukemia or acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or likewise chronic myeloid leukemia or chronic lymphoblastic or lymphocytic leukemia depends on which cell is abnormal and driving the cancer. And I think, you know, part of the takeaway that I'd love for you to expound upon a little bit more is not every leukemia then is the same. Correct. So not only not every leukemia in those general categories is the same, but within each classification there are multiple types of that particular leukemia. For instance, acute myeloid leukemia, which we're talking about today, there are multiple subtypes. We used to really define the subtype of the leukemia based on the appearance under the microscope. That is still important, but we have a a lot more variables, a lot more characteristics that help us even better refine the type of leukemia that's present. Mm-hmm. So this is really difficult stuff, <laughs> but good in that we can be more targeted in our in our treatment and, and what we do with uh, leukemias. So yeah. let's and, and I just I reflect when my dad was um, was sick is when either the, the New England Journal of Medicine um, I think it was a New England Journal of Medicine article identified eighteen different subtypes of just acute myeloid mm-hmm. leukemia. Yeah, right. So we're in a stage where we don't. We think about the disease based on um, the way it looks under the microscope, but really kind of from a clinical perspective, we think about patient characteristics, disease characteristics, meaning what are the genetics surrounding the disease and how does that help us refine now therapeutic intervention in addition to prognosis, which is how well we expect someone will do with treatment. So we think about lots of variables from um, everything from disease characteristics to patient characteristics. And so talk to us, let's let's dive into AML. So what is AML? 
And let's talk sure. about some of the symptoms and how it's how people present with it. Sure. Acute myeloid leukemia, um, we use the word acute, as I mentioned before, to um, that defines or that is um, defined by the presence of 20% or more blasts in the peripheral blood or the bone marrow. The blasts refer to these very young, unhealthy cells that are only supposed to be present in a very, very small number normally in the bone marrow and never really in the peripheral blood in a healthy patient. Um, blasts um, are, we also refer to that leukemic cell or they're the, the cancerous cell essentially of the bone marrow and acute myeloid leukemia. So the diagnosis is made based on review of the blood and review of the a bone marrow biopsy. Patients with acute myeloid leukemia frequently present due to abnormalities associated with the cancer. So because the cancer essentially takes hold of the bone marrow, and in the normal stage, the bo- normal state, the bone marrow is responsible for making healthy red blood cells, healthy white blood cells, and healthy platelets, patients frequently present with complications related to abnormalities in those blood counts. So the hemoglobin is low. That results in anemia, and patients who are anemic have symptoms of fatigue, shortness of breath. Likewise, when the platelet count is low, and the platelets are responsible for um, resulting in normal clotting or, or lack of bleeding complications, patients may present with bruising and bleeding. And finally, the white blood cell count um, is frequently very deranged and can be either too high or too low. And so patients may present with complications from um, uh, abnormal white count, meaning infectious complications, or if the white count is too high, can have symptoms of headache, confusion, shortness of breath, because those white blood cells can trap in those organs. And then, so, so typically people will, sh- will present with bleeding or bruising or an infection or fatigue, and then you will do the diagnostic workup, which then results in the, in the, diag- in the diagnosis of AML. Exactly. And so talk to us, you, you, you said a blood test and you talked about a bone marrow biopsy. Um, and right. so when you're doing, you know, even deeper analysis, can you, you know, tell us what is in, in, included in that and, and what type of analysis do you search for as you're thinking about how to treat patients? Perfect. So whenever we interact with a patient, the first thing we do is talk to them and talk about their history, what um, brought them to medical care, medical attention, what symptoms they're having. And then um, we do a physical exam. When I'm examining my patient um, with concern for potential for a blood cancer, I'm taking a look at their skin, looking in their mouth. We're trying to identify any sites of bruising or bleeding, um, any infectious um, issues. I'm also examining um, their abdomen to see if there's uh any enlarged organs that helps point me in a direction as I'm thinking about what could be going on. And of course, listen to their heart and lungs. And most importantly, I think, is getting a good just kind of general sense of whether they're, um, whether there's any concern that I think that they're urgently ill, that there's an immediate issue that needs to be handled, handled right then and there. So after um, a long conversation and physical examination, we arrange for a bone marrow, 
bone marrow biopsy. I before I do the bone marrow biopsy, and usually as part, and definitely as part of that, those first steps, I review the peripheral blood under the microscope. I may know what things are just by looking at the blood. The bone marrow is done um, even if we know what we're dealing with, as we can get much more information. And those pieces of information that we are acquiring are really the um, genetic information about the disease. So we send cytogenetic studies or chromosome studies, and we also send mutational analysis. That gives us um, information about what mutations or changes in the leukemia cells are present. In addition Looking at the bone marrow under the microscope, and the what the word we use is morphology, the appearance of the cells, uh, helps us understand the disease as well. And when you're talking about all of those tests, um, you know we hear a lot about personalized medicine, and we hear the words right. genomics. And how does that apply to AML? Great. So. The genetic information that we are talking about refers to the changes within the leukemia cells and not genetic changes that are passed down from um, mother or father to their child. That is also of relevance um, potentially in leukemias, and that's something if we have time we can talk about. But what I'm referring to right now are the genetic changes just within the bone marrow, the leukemia cells. And we have two categories of genetic information that we look at. One are the cytogenetics or chromosomes. Those show us about large shifts of genetic information and can be seen under the microscope, a special microscope, when we cause when we get the cells into a dividing state and can pull apart the chromosome information and look at it under the microscope. That's conducted by a specialist called a cytogeneticist. That information helps us put the patient's disease into a couple of buckets of prognostic information. In addition, today, the chromosome information may also help us tailor our therapy. So cytogenetic information is one piece of the genetic information we're looking at. We also look, the second piece that we also look at are the mutations. And mutations are small changes, genetic changes that we can't identify under a microscope and need to do studies to essentially draw them out. We, there are a number of ways that those studies can be done. They can be done by looking for, asking the lab to look for specific mutations or large panels of mutational profiling can be done. There are a number of mutations that help us with two things. Number one, understanding the prognosis of the disease, how well one will do with the treatment. And number two, we now have treatments that target some of those specific mutations. So the, that information helps us with treatment planning. 
Perfect. Thank you. And this is a great place to stop for um, for just a second as we take a quick commercial break. And we will be back right after the break to take a closer look at what we've just covered um, in a little bit more detail and um, the advances that have been made in treating AML. This episode of Frankly Speaking About Cancer is made possible through the generous support of Estellas. And we will be right back after this break. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is made possible with the generous support of Estellas. You hear a different voice today. I'm Linda House and sitting in for your regular host, Kim Tebaldo, who is off. Today, we are taking a close look at the advances in treating AML or acute myeloid leukemia. And we're so lucky to have Dr. Jessica Altman with us, who is the Associate Professor um, in the Division of Hematology Oncology at Northwestern University. 
Feinstein School of, I'm sorry, Feinberg School of Medicine. Dr. Altman is a member of the American Society of Hematology, and she chairs the steering committee of the AML-MDS Matters Program. She's active in ECOG and Akron Cooperative Group, which is a really interesting research organization, and serves as a member of the NCCN Acute Myeloid Leukemia Panel, who sets guidelines for the way that AML is treated, and the NCCN Chronic Myelogenous Leukemia Panel, again, for um, setting guidelines. So thank you again for being with us, Dr. Altman. And I wanted to pick up on the amazing description that you provided right before the break when you were talking about the importance of um, of genomics and genetics and the difference. And I like to think about, um, you know, what you said as you're really analyzing the disease that is living within the patient, right? So you have you have the patient as the host, but we are now at a point now where we're able to to get so specific about how to treat that, that specific cancer that's living within the patient by doing all of the analysis that you had, uh, that you had mentioned before the break. Yes, thank you. Um, it's, again, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, and to pick up on where we left off, the, the genetic information that we have in conjunction with the appearance of the disease under the microscope helps us refine our treatment decisions, or excuse me, our treatment recommendations with, for our patients and talk about um, what options we think are most appropriate. So let's, uh, let's enlighten our listeners a little bit to the types of treatment um, that are available. And, you know, there was, again, two years ago, and there is now, you know, so as you're thinking about people who are entering this world that is very fast moving when you're diagnosed, um, talk a little bit about, you know, how they can become involved in their care or how they can educate themselves, especially in this early phase, and what types of treatments might they be hearing about? Great. You asked Lots of very important questions in one question. And so if I don't get everything, please remind me to talk about the next item. What I heard, I think, most clearly was um, how to get educated and how to be aware of treatment options. So that's what I'll start with. Um, That's great. Acute myeloid leukemia is exceedingly rare. There are just under 20,000 cases a year in the United States. So it is not expected to be part of most people's vocabulary. And it is of critical importance that patients and their family members feel empowered to ask their healthcare providers for more information and to take to spend the time together with their healthcare providers understanding the disease. And I mean all aspects of the disease. So understanding the biology of the disease and understanding the treatment options and hearing from the healthcare providers how to glean more information both about disease biology but treatment options. And it is the healthcare provider's job to ensure that patients and their family members have those resources through their conversations and also know how to access more information. So not all of this can be done 
in an exceedingly short period of time. And so the initial appointments with patients, whether patients are seen in the office or seen in the hospital, take time. Um, And it's not all done by the physician. We have teams of people who support our patients and their families, whether that be nurse practitioners and physician assistants, so the advanced practice provider group, nurses, both inpatient kind of bedside nurses and outpatient leukemia program coordinating nurses, and then social workers. And having that kind of blanketing of support um, helps significantly. And I love that you outlined, you know, the treatment team, because I do think that each member brings something, you know, to the table. And, exactly. you know, a really important member when my, um, when my dad went through his experience was the palliative care physician, you know, because, mm-hmm. you know, as we, as we talked before, a lot of times patients present with symptoms before they even have a diagnosis. And um, the palliative care physician can really help manage some of those symptoms and add a different or a, an additional um, layer of expertise to the experience. I agree with you completely. So let's dive into AML. And what are the types of treatments that patients should expect to to hear about? And I, I think it's really important because we'll, we'll we will have listeners to this show who are sort of in that acute phase, and then I think we'll have listeners um, on the who are listening in who may be, you know, five years or, or, or so out. Um, and things have just changed dramatically. So what are some of the terms and, and treatments that, that people could expect to, to hear about? Great. I think about the initial phase of treatment as in two general categories. The first category I think about is intensive, and the second category I think about is less intensive. And the decision... for a patient and their family members as they're trying to grapple with which approach to go through really depends a lot on intent. What is the intent or goal of treatment? And the kind of the layering within that are patient characteristics and disease characteristics. So when a conversation or multiple conversations about treatment planning occur, it helps to know what we what one can expect with the more intensive therapies and what one can expect with the less intensive therapies. And the response to those depends on disease characteristics and the tolerance of those treatments depends on patient characteristics. And within patient characteristics, I want I think it's important to mention kind of patient goals and what what value is placed on different things. So that's a general kind of those are general comments. Regarding the specifics of treatment, the intensive approach, the intensive arms include what we refer to as our standard injection chemotherapy or or 7 plus 3. It's two drugs, one that's given continuously for seven days called cytarabine and one that's given over three days as a 
as a short infusion that is either donorubicin or idorubicin generally. That's the anthracycline. There is a newer formulation of those drugs called CPX351 or Vixios that is approved for adults with therapy-related acute myeloid leukemia or acute myeloid leukemia with myelodysplasia-related changes. Essentially, acute myeloid leukemia that comes from a prior sickness in the bone marrow or related to prior chemotherapy and or irradiation. Those are the intensive arms. The less intensive arms have had a major change over the last year and really over the last couple weeks. There are two drugs that are now approved to be combined with the low-intensity therapies. The low-intensity therapies, there are three of them. One is low-dose cytarabine. I just mentioned cytarabine when given in combination with an anthracycline in a high-intensity arm. So low-dose cytarabine or one of two drugs that we refer to as hypomethylating agents or azacytidine and decytabine are the names. There have now been two drugs that are approved to be combined with those agents. Glastigib, which is, uh, combined, can be combined with the low-dose cytarabine, and venetoclax, which can be combined with the low-dose cytarabine or the hypomethylating agents, and they lead to an improvement, we believe, in response rate and in survival. The randomized data comparing directly venetoclax with azacytidine or azacytidine alone, that clinical trial has been completed and we're waiting for the final analysis to see if there truly is an improvement in survival. When we look at single arm studies compared to historical controls or what we know or believe to exist in our patients who've been treated with those um, lower intensity therapies alone without those new treatments, the response rate and the um, survival appears longer. This has led to this has led to a lot of excitement, and um, we are thrilled to be able to offer these new therapies in combination with the lower intensity treatments for our patients. Now, the new therapies, those are done, as you said, sort of in the intensive phase. Um, and then and then you move patients to bone marrow transplant or how does that sort of layering in work now with the new therapies? Great. And we should probably define what a bone marrow transplant yep. is too. Perfect. So what I just spoke about were um, the initial arms of treatment. And the this is where we get a little bit to intent or goal. Mm-hmm. The intensive arms that I mentioned, CPX351, also called Vixios or standard 7 plus 3, the intent of those therapies, the goal is cure. The less intensive arms... The while 
the goal is to get the disease in remission, and the goal is to allow patients to live as long as possible and maintaining a good life quality. The intent, especially without a stem cell transplant, is that the likelihood that is that the, the disease will come back. And those therapies are, alone are very unlikely to result in cure. So the, that is one aspect of conversation that, that occurs. And what, Linda, I think you're, you're alluding to is after in a patient whose, whose goal it is is to ideally be able to proceed with a curative approach, we offer an induction therapy, and based on the disease characteristics, essentially how long we anticipate the patient's disease being in, or let me rephrase that, based on the disease characteristics, if we think, based on how likely we think it is that the disease will um, be cured without a transplant, we make uh, this uh, recommendation and make decisions with our patients and their family members about whether we proceed with stem cell transplant or not. Got it. Okay. Thank okay. you. I'm going to just I'm going to just pause you here because we do need to run to a quick commercial break, but we're going to pick up right where we're leaving off here um, to sort of help patients, um, you know, decipher a little bit of, of of what their options would be. So we will take this quick break. Please join us um, after uh, the commercial break. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. 
To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your guest host today, Linda House, and I'm so pleased to be joined by Dr. Jessica Altman, who is from the Robert H. Lurie Cancer Center of Northwestern University, among other prestigious um, appointments. We just went through a a really helpful explanation of uh, what would be available to patients, and I'm just going to try to to put it in a nutshell, and then, um, Dr. Altman, I'd like for you to to continue the, the conversation. So, we talked that there was an intensive phase. We talked about um, a less intensive phase. A lot of that is being driven based on the the markers that you talked about in our first and then in the early part of the second um, second segment. And really the idea of are you going for a cure or are you going to help patients live as long as they can and as well as they can. And the, the balance of that is the, the type of treatment, whether it's really intensive chemotherapy followed by um, a stem cell transplant or whether it's chemotherapy alone to try to, pro- to prolong that, that survival and, and have patients live as well as they possibly can. Did I summarize that um, accurately? I think you summarized it really well. The one thing that I would just like to stress as well is in addition to disease characteristics that help us drive decision-making, a huge component of it is patient characteristics and goals. Um, And whether the patient and the care team think it's appropriate and helpful for the patient to receive intensive induction therapy versus one of the less intensive arms now with these additional new agents that um, are helpful. So I, I definitely want to get to that because, you know, at CSC, we're all about uh, about patient empowerment. Um, but just before we get to that, just so that our patients know kind of what questions to ask, just talk to us about um, a few of the more, um, the, the more recent advancements. I know that there's still a handful that we haven't really touched on. Great. So thank you. I mentioned Lastigib and Venetoclax already. We have... And I also mentioned CPX351, which is used as an, in, an intensive induction therapy in place of 7 plus 3 for certain subtypes of acute myeloid leukemia. There are two more therapies that we consider in a patient with newly diagnosed disease who is considering who, who the plan is for intensive induction therapy. One is the addition of gemtuzumab azogomycin, which is a mouthful. We can call it myelotarg or GO for gemtuzumab azogomycin. That's a anti, an antibody against a marker on the vast majority of AML cells called CD33. And that is combined with 7 plus 3 in adults with newly diagnosed acute myeloid leukemia whose disease is considered favorable or intermediate based on cytogenetics. Number one, 
The next one I'd like to mention is the addition of mitostorin. Mitostorin is a pill that is combined with standard 7 plus 3 for adults with newly diagnosed acute myeloid leukemia with a specific mutation in something called FLT3, F-L-T-3, which stands for FIMS-like tyrosine kinase 3, and that's why we call it FLT3. That's too much to say. That's an additional pill that has been shown to improve survival when it's combined with standard 7 plus 3 in adults with newly diagnosed acute myeloid leukemia with that specific mutation. Those are treatments that are utilized in patients with newly diagnosed disease. We also have um, treatments that are approved in disease that is has recurred, that we also called relapsed, or is refractory to initial treatment, meaning it hasn't responded or hasn't responded well enough. One of those therapies is called gilteritinib. Gilteritinib is a FLT3 inhibitor. I just mentioned FLT3, and that's why I'm starting with this one. It is a pill that is, can, is used by itself for adults with recurrent or refractory acute myeloid leukemia with a FLT3 mutation. There also are two, there also are two other targeted therapies. Um, one is called um, ivocytinib, and one is called enosinidib. Those therapies are approved for patients with um, relapsed or refractory acute myeloid leukemia with two other specific mutations. And so if, if I'm a patient or a caregiver, mm-hmm. right, um, you know, we've talked about how important it is to, to be a part of this conversation. And, you know, what I hear is, you know, y- you will clearly be the expert on the tumor living within the patient, right? Or, and I use that word loosely because it's a, it's a liquid tumor. It's a leukemia, so it's not a, a tumor mm-hmm. like we normally think. Um, the disease living within the patient. But the patient and the family will be the expert on how they're going to live with the disease and the treatment. And so what I heard in your description of um, a lot of the new, um, the new agents is that the administration might be different the scheduling might be different. There might be different side effects that they would experience. So can you walk us through what um, you would hope for as a physician, a traditional dialogue would be um, that would enable you to think about how do you best meet the patient's goals of therapy as a part of treatment? And I think this is a great question. And I wish I had more time to discuss this. Um, We are now in a situation in acute myeloid leukemia therapy where there is choice and a the the importance and value that that patients have for for specific aspects of their lives and for their kind of life outlook becomes that much more important as we have choice the the and so when I'm meeting with patients and their families over their first visits, and then that continues throughout my relationship with them, it's of critical importance for us to understand what patients' goals and values are. And part of the way that I, I try to open up that conversation 
is to hear about their social history. And so that's part of general medical history and physical exam skills is getting a good social history. And so I ask about who's in their life, who's important, what they enjoy doing, and what life cycle events are upcoming that are important to them. And that helps as we talk about the the way that the chemotherapy is administered and what um, side effects one sh- will be, um, one is likely to experience. And that helps me reflect and helps, I think, empower my patients um, to be able to start to place value on things as we're having the conversation because it is very difficult when there's choice in therapy. Well, and and again, I just I sort of wanted to drive this point home because I reflect on you know when my dad was sick and you know there were there were decisions being made very quickly. I'll just say that because they had to be because it is a, mm-hmm. a crisis type situation, you know. And I just remember saying, you know, stop, you know, just support him with blood products for twenty four hours until we could really get our heads wrapped around the decisions we needed to make and collect some additional information. Um, and then we we came back and and I, and I thought had a really uh, a nice conversation about how to move forward. I think that's a really important point. There are times when we don't have much time to make a careful um, plotting type of decision. There are times when someone is acutely ill related to the disease and we need to start immediate therapy. Um, but we've there's been a change really over the last couple of years as we now have more therapies that we are utilizing and have more choice of treatment that we try to wait for the genetic information about the disease before we finalize our treatment recommendations because um, we simply because now we do have choice and we've there's been a little there's been a shift in how we approach um, even the initial phases in acute myeloid leukemia, and that has occurred really over the, just the last last couple of years. That's terrific. And we are going to have to stop for another quick commercial break, and then we'll be back with um, our final segment of Frankly Speaking About Cancer, AML. Today's episode is brought to you by Estellas, and we'll be right back after this commercial break. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. 
Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the AZI Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and today's episode has been made possible thanks to the generous support of Estellis. I am your guest host today, standing in for Kim Tivoldo, who is off, and my guest is Dr. Jessica Altman, who has been amazing in helping us understand this journey with, uh, with AML. And um, Dr. Altman, I wanted to talk about a couple of things during this um, this quick segment, and one of those things would be resources. So we've been talking about um, how you, as a physician, make decisions about patients' options and how it's important for, for the patients to communicate their expectations to you. But um, talk to us about resources, both for physicians and for, uh, for patients as they're in, in the middle of this journey. Um, thank you. Again, it continues to be a, an absolute pleasure to be here. Um, there are... I believe that the resources available to patients and their families may vary a little bit by um, region of the country, but one of the most prevalent resources that exist um, is the um, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society um, provides incredible amount of both educational support and the ability to provide emotional support as well. Um, Emmerman's Angels is a Chicago-based organization that pairs patients um, with someone kind of like a mentor who's who's been through this before, and that's available nationally as well. Likewise, leukemia, the Leukemia Research Foundation and other organizations, um, including the American uh, Cancer Society, provide an incredible amount of support to patients and their families. I would like to stress that the um, healthcare team, wherever someone is being treated, is frequently the best place to start. They know the patient and the resources in their area the best and should be able to help direct support. Great. Thank you. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the cancer support community's um, resources as well. 
Yes, no, thank you. I appreciate that. And we do have um, an entire suite of materials on um, AML on our website, which is cancersupportcommunity.org. And one of the favors that I would ask our listeners to to really consider is we have a cancer experience registry. And we have a specific registry for patients with um, AML. And we also have a specific registry for caregivers. And I'm in the caregiver registry, as a matter of fact. And the registry is an opportunity for for people to go in and share with us their experience and then we learn from their experience and take that information and create new resources for patients and caregivers and um, also use that to help policymakers understand what the experience is like so that as they're making decisions around insurance coverage um, or new um, you know new decisions they are doing that with the, the knowledge of what patients are actually experiencing. So um, if you are interested in participating in that, the website is cancerexperienceregistry.org, although everything can be found on our main website, which is cancersupportcommunity.org. And that, so, doc, oh, go ahead, Dr. Alvin. That sounds absolutely incredible, um, and I cannot stress to the listeners enough how valuable that support is. Um, we, it's, it's quite interesting that some of the newly approved therapies that are oral agents are really being um, approved based on, in part, an improvement in life quality. And so learning more about how how treatments are are different um, through the cancer support community and and understanding kind of the value placed on those different aspects of things, I think is critical. So I wanted to thank you and your team for doing this. No, oh, thank you so much. Um, before we close the show, we've got about three minutes. I do think it's really important for us to cover clinical trials and the role that clinical trials play in um, AML. Right. I agree with you completely. The advances that have been made over the last two years in acute myeloid leukemia would not have been possible without clinical trials. We've had a large number of drugs that are approved. And it has now, I like to think about as kind of reset what our standard, uh, what our standards are. And we are now building upon that. So we're combining novel-novel agents together in early-phase clinical trials. We're trying to improve upon the response rate we're seeing with some of these targeted therapies. We're trying to move some of the things that are approved in relapse setting up to upfront setting as in combination with um, chemotherapy. And it's an incredibly exciting time. I encourage patients to talk to their healthcare providers and to help learn what clinical trials are appropriate for them. Right. And and that is whether you're in an academic center or in a community center, if, if your healthcare professional doesn't raise it with you, you should raise it with them. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. So we are unfortunately out of time. So Dr. Altman, I have to really, really thank you for coming on the show today. And we've covered a lot. There's still a lot to be covered. So I'm hoping that you'll, uh, that you'll come back. Thank you. I, I, Cannot thank you and your team enough for giving me the opportunity to discuss something that, that I'm very passionate about. Um, and thank you for sharing your personal experiences. Um, 
And thank you for all you all are doing to support individuals and their caregivers um, who are affected by cancer. Oh, thank you so much. And for our listeners, you can find more information about coping with acute myeloid leukemia and advances in treatment at our website as we talked, www.cancersupportcommunity.org. You can just click on how to get information about different types of cancer and it will be there. And again, I would like to invite you to participate in our cancer experience registry. You can also get to it through that homepage or you can go directly to it by going to www.cancerexperienceregistry.org. And there is one final resource um, that I do want uh, to remind you of, and that is our Cancer Support Helpline. That number is 888-793-9355. And the helpline is staffed by licensed mental health professionals. So you can call them anytime. And again, I think about um, people with AML who may be in the hospital for an extended period of time. We would love for you to, to join um, our support network and uh, reach out to, to those individuals. Again, that number is 888-793-9355. And all of our services are provided free of charge. I am Linda House, the president of the Cancer Support Community, and it's been my absolute pleasure to have you join us today for Frankly Speaking About Cancer. As mentioned earlier, the Cancer Support Community provides a multitude of in-person, online, and telephonic support. I've mentioned it before. I will repeat it again um, for our website, which is cancersupportcommunity.org, the helpline, 888-793-9355. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. <music>